Solidarity, a podcast where we draw connections between power, place, and health, and discuss how our lives, our fates, are all interconnected. Here are your hosts, Erica Burrell-Girardi and Beth Silver. Hi there, and welcome to episode three of In Solidarity. I'm your host, Erica Burrell-Girardi, here with my co-host, Beth Silver. Hi, Beth. How are you? Doing great, Erica. Thank you. I can't believe we're already halfway through our mini-series on the racial wealth gap and how it impacts our health and well-being. We want to thank you for joining us in these conversations. We've heard from two impressive scholars, author Donald Cohen, and our colleague at County Health Rankings, Dr. Christine Muganda. There's more to come. Once again, this is In Solidarity, Connecting Power, Place, and Health, a podcast from County Health Rankings and Roadmaps. This podcast is about how our lives are interconnected and how that impacts communities' health. In this, our third installment in our mini-series on the racial wealth gap, we're going to take a step back, learn about how we got here, the history of the racial wealth gap in the United States. To help us do this, we'll be speaking with Dr. Dalton Conley of Princeton University. Dr. Conley is the Henry Putnam University Professor in Sociology and a faculty affiliate at the Office of Population Research and the Center for Health and Well-Being. His research has centered on socioeconomic and health status through the generations, and he's written a landmark book on a racial wealth gap called Being Black, Living in the Red. So glad he's joining us. We're lucky to have him. In our last episode, Erica, you touched on broken promises after the Civil War, when the federal government planned to give formerly enslaved people 40 acres and a mule and then rescinded that policy. It was a first chance at accumulating wealth just gone. At the same time, the Homestead Act provided land to more than a million and a half white Americans through the 1930s. Unfortunately, the 20th century is full of deliberate acts to restrict Black families from building wealth. Consider the Tulsa Massacre, where in 1921, white residents, including police and government officials, killed 300 Black residents and leveled a thriving neighborhood that was called Black Wall Street, leaving 10,000 homeless. Generations of wealth just erased overnight, Erica. And by the way, we're not just talking about the rich. When we talk about wealth, we're starting with the basics, the minimum, like three-month savings, access to higher education, access to home ownership, affordable rental housing, and a secure retirement. This framework for economic needs, by the way, is expertly laid out in the report from the Institute for Policy Studies, The Road to Zero Wealth, How the Racial Wealth Divide is Hollowing Out America's Middle Class. And that report outlines how the racial wealth divide impacts not just Black Americans, but Hispanic Americans, Native Americans, and Asian Americans. That's right, Beth. We're not talking about getting rich here. We're pointing out that meeting these basic economic needs and Helping families through their generations means equal opportunities. To go to college without accumulating massive debt, to be able to move for jobs, to enjoy the financial security and other advantages of home ownership. Consider the New Deal and other federal programs to build a strong middle class. Black Americans were largely excluded, as they were from the GI Bill when it was first implemented. Then redlining to digital redlining today the federal tax code. So much history to explore where people of color have been excluded from government-supported wealth-building programs. It's worth repeating. The typical white family has 10 times the wealth 
of the typical Black family in this country and seven times the wealth of the typical Hispanic family. I know Dr. Conley will have insights into all of this. Let's bring him into the discussion. Absolutely. Please help us welcome Dr. Dalton Conley. Welcome, Dr. Conley. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, You know, on In Solidarity, the theme that runs through our show is the idea of social solidarity, that our lives and fates are connected in ways that are not always obvious. Let me start with that question. What does social solidarity mean to you, and how does it influence the work that you do? Uh, I guess social solidarity, to me, means that... uh, it, that people should have a recognition that our fates are not completely independent mm-hmm. of each other and that and our fates are intertwined. And that's something that uh, in American society, we often forget because we're, we have such a strong streak of individualism. Mm-hmm. We think that uh, if we accumulate wealth, to jump to the topic we're going to talk about, that we did that ourselves, uh, I think in the famous words of Mitt Romney. Um, but we also have to recognize that we relied on a lot. Uh, if we're so fortunate to acquire wealth, uh, we uh, relied on a lot of other people, public goods, a long history um, of development in the United States. So I think from from my kind of quantitative sort of socioeconomic perspective, thinking about solidarity means thinking about those economic interconnections. Mm-hmm. Your first book, Being Black, Living in the Red, is required reading for anyone interested in the racial wealth gap. You're one of the first scholars to point out that wealth, and we're talking about intergenerational wealth here, is even more important than income when looking at racial inequality. Why is wealth a better measure than income? For years, we were using income as a sort of just a general indicator of a family's economic well-being, simply because that's the data that we had as social scientists and journalists and demographers and so on. But something happened in the 1980s. I don't know what it was. It's like Reagan's Morning in America or something. But (laughs) we started collecting wealth data in national surveys, and that allowed us for the first time to actually assess independently, the effect of income, the effect of wealth, and the effect of a parent's occupation, for that matter, and a parent's um, uh, education level, independently on the, on the offspring. And what we found or in my earlier studies was that it turned out income didn't really matter. The parent's occupation, the prestige of their occupation, whether they were a, uh, you know, a line worker or a doctor or uh, what have you, didn't really matter. The two factors that mattered were a parent's education level and a parent and parental net worth. That and just to define net worth, that's if you if you add up everything you own and you try to sell it all, you know, in the stock market, your home on eBay, whatever you got, and then paid off all your debts, that would be your net worth. And if, mm-hmm. unfortunately for many of us, that's negative. For a lot of American families, that's positive. But that figure, second only to parental education, was the strongest predictor of how kids did in school mm-hmm. and in and how they launched in life uh, after school. Now. Why uh, is wealth more important than income? Well, if you think about it, I, I, I don't know if you've ever paid for kids' uh, college education, but you're not you're not like saying, "Okay, uh, honey, 
our kids are going to college now. I guess, you know, let's, um, let's cancel HBO and I'll work a couple extra hours right. and we'll make it work out on our paychecks. No, that's not how we pay for something as massive as um, a college education. We pay for it from a pool of resources that mm-hmm. we may or may not have accumulated over not just one generation, but multiple generations. And so uh, it turns out that that wealth and also reflect reflected in what school district we live in for K through 12 education, because housing wealth is the primary uh, uh, vehicle of wealth accumulation for the typical American family. And that's correlated with school quality through local property taxes. So there's many ways that wealth can affect uh, children's life chances and income just pays for food, shelter, and HBO if you're lucky. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Now, was this view the way the way you see wealth as a measure was that considered controversial at the time when you published published your book in 1999? Like, did you receive pushback from that? Uh, not really. Actually, I think it was a welcome as um, people after the fact thought it was really obvious, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it's just that people didn't have the data yet to discover it. But I had intergenerational data, data on ch- parents and children, in some case, grandparents as well. So I could see how wealth flowed through generations right. and how it impacted other life opportunities for kids. So that was my contribution. And I, I was remarkably well received. I, I don't think I, I'm, I rated as one of the less controversial studies I've done in my <laughs> lifetime. Good. You know, you, you mentioned history. We we want to dig into the legacy of this massive divide. What were some of the deliberate acts that brought us to this point? And what are the things that endure or perpetuate the wealth divide? Um, that's a really um, important and comprehensive question. We can go back, of course, to slavery mm-hmm. and um, the involuntary migration to these shores that uh, Black Americans experienced and unpaid uh, unrequited labor for that period through the Civil War. After the Civil War, there was talk among radical Republicans. Radical being a radical Republican back in those days meant something else. Um, <laughs> radical Republicans uh, uh, after the Civil War of what we would today call reparations of f- the famous phrase "40 acres and a mule" mm-hmm. um, of land redistribution from plantations um, and other forms of self-help uh, policies to get the now freed men and women sort of on their economic feet. Instead, that ne- that never came. We got um, backlash during Reconstruction in the South, and we uh, and in that engendered a um, a system of sharecropping, which mm-hmm. um, kept um, African American farmers in a cycle of of just keep barely keeping their heads above water. Um, there was the Homestead Act of uh, 1862, uh, the Southern Homestead Act of 1862, which did provide land for the taking, but it turned out to be mostly swamp land, and then the Homestead Act, which kind of caused a big migration westward of a lot of Americans. Black Americans found that their 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 claims to deeds were not enforceable. So in other words, they could go out to um, Wyoming or Colorado, mark out a ranch, uh, but then a, uh, a white individual could sort of trump that claim hmm. by also claiming it. So there are a lot of um, racist policies in the 19th century. Some of those fell away in the 20th century, but they were replaced by other obstacles. So, uh, in the as in the, as the mic- great migration started occurring, and many African Americans moved to northern cities, the banks instituted um, a policy called redlining, so that 
and the red line red line term comes from the fact that they would rate different neighborhoods based on their sort of sense of risk of default of the loans in those neighborhoods and they would be rated one to four there were four groups and the bottom group four they would circle on maps with a red line um, and they would have no loans go to that category of of houses or apartments and so um, and of course that's turns out that that was disproportionate where african-americans live so they were not able to access credit to become homeowners and in the early 20th century, not many Americans were homeowners, but we start starting in the 20s, we see a growth that really accelerated um, in the second half of the 20th century. Um, and Blacks were still excluded from that due to that residential concentration and segregation in, in uh, redlined zones, but also because um, they were not as eligible for a federally subsidized uh, FHA, a Federal Housing Administration, loans that guaranteed a, a lower interest rate for VA loans after World War II mm -hmm. um, and so forth. This is like a marathon answer um, <laughs> because there's so many factors. Um, the, it, in the meantime, in order to get uh, the New Deal through Congress, FDR cut a devil's bargain with the Southern Democratic conservative senators that controlled the committees that that uh, wanted to exclude African-Americans from the social safety net as much as possible. And while in the 19th century, you could pass the black codes by the 20th century in federal government, at least you couldn't be that explicit to say like social security, blacks are not eligible for social security. But what they did do is they excluded domestic workers and, and agricultural workers mm -hmm. from the social security system. That was, if I remember my statistics correctly, um, something like two thirds of the African American workforce were in those two sectors at that time. If you go forward from that mid 20th century uh, um, period, we still saw for many years. Uh, it wasn't until Clinton outlined redlining that it became illegal, and, and there's still been evidence that there's things like buyer discrimination in the housing mm -hmm. market um, by real estate agents and by um, sellers. Minorities pay higher interest rates or more likely to be turned down for a loan. So there are a number of factors. People are trying to chip away at all those, you know, as we speak over the last couple of decades. But it's kind of like whack-a-mole because there's, you know, one thing uh, yeah. will be addressed and, and something else will pop up. And <clears throat> there are, once this sort of great wealth inequity gets baked into the system, you don't even need those explicit policies or programs anymore, a gap becomes self-perpetuating. I think the large right. part of the gap today is not due to those, those factors. It's due to the fact that a, a typical white family is likely to have family wealth in their past generations that's, that mm -hmm. is directly or indirectly passed on directly through gifts and inheritances, but also mm -hmm. indirectly meaning like one child might um, graduate college with zero debt because they had family that could pay for it right. through wealth and another child might graduate with a big uh, in the hole with a big student loan right. that they have to dig out of before they can even start accumulating wealth that's just one example but i think most of the most of the ongoing uh, effects are due to just unequal economic circumstances yeah. so the the fact that it's uh you know self-perpetuating does that mean that the gap will continue to widen some people think that the gap will narrow because as incomes converge, inevitably wealth might lag, but it'll eventually catch up. It'll be, it might be the last 
indicator that we see converge. Other people think that it will widen because it, it, to put it simply, it takes money to make money. And the more yeah. assets you have, the more you're able to access higher yield investments, you're able to take greater risks uh, and so on. And uh, the certainly in absolute terms, the gap widens. In my observations in the data, the gap has been remarkably stable. I mean, it goes up and down, it fluctuates with the stock market. Uh, it, when the stock market is down, the gap is smaller because wealthier people um, uh, who are disproportionately white tend to have more money in securities. So when they lose that money, the gap shrinks a bit and it widens when the stock market is on a big uh, bull run tear. But it's more or less, uh, um, I've been saying for the last 25 years, you know, 10 cents on the dollar that the median or typical African-American family has about uh, 10 cents to every dollar of wealth for the median or typical white family. And yeah, it's been up to one to 12 and down to one to eight at certain periods, but it's been hovering around that. Dr. Conley, in this country, families build a lot of their wealth in their homes. How does home ownership impact the wealth gap? Home ownership is the single most important um, asset that most American families have. For for super rich families, the, the value of their, their primary residence is probably dwarfed by other assets. But for the vast majority of us, we're living in our piggy bank. And the way homeownership is structured in the United States really facilitates that because it's a highly leveraged investment. You can put down 20%, sometimes as little as 10% or even 5% if you have like an FHA-backed mortgage and and you're essentially living in a in an asset that's worth um, 10, 5, 10, or 20 times what you've put in is a stake. Mm-hmm. Of course, you're paying the bank and you're paying interest, but often the, those interest rates are fixed over the life course. You have to be paying, if you weren't owning your home, you'd have to be paying rent anyway. So the net cost of becoming a homeowner is incremental. It's not. It's not like you're just buying stocks where that money could be used to pay to pay for expenses uh, that you would be incurring on a day to day level. So it, it it's become sort of the the bread and butter of how American families accumulate wealth. Black families are at a disadvantage in this in this system for a number of reasons. We've talked about the different interest rates that that uh, families pay. The the uh, most important factor, though, is just the um, the difference in rates of accumulation or you know, changes in, in housing prices in black and white neighborhoods. So uh, typical, majority black neighborhoods tend to have prices of houses that rise more slowly than in white neighborhoods. But the housing market, um, because it's unlike, it has this weird character that it's both an asset like buying and selling stock, but it's also, and we care a lot about that part, but it's also something we care about because we live in it. It's our community. It's a status symbol, et cetera, et cetera. So it um, it's really gets um, perverted in that way and soiled by, by past and current um, racial dynamics rather than, you know, if we were just talking about buying soybean futures, there would be no effect of race on that, for example. Yeah. You know, restrictions around housing seem, um, as we're talking, um, have 
played a major role in keeping wealth out of the hands of black Americans. You cite uh, in your book that fewer than 1% of mortgages issued between 1930 and 1960 went to black Americans. Can you tell us about the government's role in some of these 20th century housing discrimination practices? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the, the U.S. government throughout the 20th century and now has made a conscious choice to make uh, homeownership a, a primary vehicle of wealth accumulation or kind of a family social safety net or nest egg. They've done it with, and we still do it, with the um, interest mortgage, mortgage interest deduction mm -hmm. that your net cost of taking out a big mortgage is lower because you can deduct the, the interest you pay from your taxes. They do it through the, the state and local tax deduction because if you have a more wealthy a uh, more valuable home, you're paying higher uh, property taxes, but you get to deduct those. So it, it, it helps soften that blow. And then they've done it explicitly through uh, programs like the VA and FHA mortgage programs. And then later Fannie Mae um, backed mortgages where the government is essentially um, taking some of the risk so that the, the homeowner or the purchaser can get a lower interest rate. Mm -hmm. If I'm in the bank and I know that your your loan is backed by the government, uh, Veterans Administration or the Federal Housing Administration, then I can, you know, offer you a lower interest rate because it's less risky. And those have disproportionately gone to um, to to white suburban households. Um, in our next episode, we'll get into reparations and the wealth divide. Um, but what do you think are some of the solutions to address the ra racial wealth gap? And, you know, along those lines, a common perception to the historical drivers of the wealth gap seem to be it isn't our responsibility to address decisions that were made by previous generations. What do you say to that? Taking that last part first, you know, mm -hmm. what do we say to people who say, look, I, I earned my money, whether there was wrongs done 150 years ago is, is, has nothing to do with, with my wealth. But um, uh, as I've talked about before, wealth, unlike income, which you have to kind of keep showing up at work each week to get your paycheck for, wealth has a, a much more sort of the sediment of history and, and, and has much more long-term intergenerational influences. So even if you were not a um, you know a slaveholder in 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 Charleston in 1850. Maybe you were maybe your ancestors worked for Aetna Insurance Company in Hartford, Connecticut, mm -hmm. and they made a lot of money insuring slave capital. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you weren't even directly working for Aetna, but you ran a little dry goods store in Hartford. But all your customers worked for Aetna, so the, Aetna was the big driver of that economy. So we're all connected. Going back to that solidarity mm -hmm. question, so it's hard to say something doesn't have to do with me today. That said, I in general favor race-neutral solutions that tend to be progressive because I think they they are politically more viable in our country. So um, I've discussed reparations, direct like racial reparations, but also becomes very difficult to calculate who's eligible. What does that mean? Does someone who immigrated from Jamaica in last year, is, are they eligible? Uh, likewise for um, a white who immigrated from the Soviet Union in you know 1990. I don't know. Those are a lot. It's much more easy to, in my view, at least, to to design policies to help with low wealth families. Those families, as I mentioned, because of the ten to one gap, 
are disproportionately going to be African-American families that, that will benefit from, from a, a, a wealth policy. So I would sort of have wealth redistribution through a much more massive example, version of what um, Senator Cory Booker has talked about, for example, with baby bonds, where you know the mm-hmm. government seeds an account, an investment account for um, for uh, fam for kids when they're born, um, uh, and that can be means tested based on the wealth of the family, and therefore it can be very racially progressive and redistributive. But really, if we want to do make a big dent, we have to just explicitly give wealth to families that do not have it and and give them the tools to grow that wealth. If if it were race neutral, does it actually uh, impact the racial gap? Yes, because of the 10 to 1 gap. From a policy or political perspective, you can do an enormous amount, you know, uh, uh, yes, black billionaires will not get any help, but <laughs> um, but um, but disproportionately, uh, African American families will receive the majority of that mm-hmm. kind of um, uh, uh, redistribution. Yes, you know, poor white families, you know, low wealth white families will as well. But you want an interracial coalition to build political support mm-hmm. for something like that, anyway, and that will, I think, in the long run, be good for America as well because we're, because economic inequality in general, has gotten so staggering. Wow. Yeah, great. Well, great stuff. Thank you so much, Dr. Conley. Um, we really appreciate this. Uh, again, I hope we can have you back because I would love to get into some of your more current research. That would be great. What a great conversation with Dr. Conley. I think the more conversations we have, the more I'm learning. And This was a sobering one, but very insightful. Agreed on both counts. The deliberate and ongoing way Black Americans and other people of color were and continue to be prevented from building wealth. The fact that wealth or the lack of it impacts everything, our communities, our health. Yeah, the fact that the share of the country's wealth for Black Americans only moved from 0.5% at the end of the Civil War to 1% in 1990 is really sad. Some experts believe the gap could be worsening, but the good news, as we heard from Dr. Conley, is that there are things that we can do about this, and in some cases already are doing. On that note, our next guest is Dr. Andre Perry. He's a senior fellow with the Brookings Institution and a scholar in residence at American University. In 2020, he co-authors a Brookings policy brief called Why We Need Reparations for Black Americans. It's a piece that's chock full of solutions. We're so excited to talk with Dr. Perry in our next episode. Until then, I'm Beth. And I'm Erica. And we're in solidarity, connecting power, place, and health. Now it's your turn to join the conversation. Head over to our podcast page on countyhealthrankings.org and share your thoughts with us. The question for this episode is, Is a race-neutral solution the answer to the racial wealth divide in this country? In Solidarity is a production of County Health Rankings and Roadmaps from the University of Wisconsin with funding from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Views expressed by guests of In Solidarity are their own. Their appearance on In Solidarity does not imply County Health Rankings and Roadmaps endorsement. 
To learn more about our guests' work, to discover additional resources on the topics we've discussed, or to find out how healthy your community is, visit us at countyhealthrankings.org.